This week on the show, we have open source and enterprise environments, your comprehensive guide to RC, previously services and automation, how Rob Pike got hired by Dennis Ritchie, an interesting historic uh, tidbit here, what previously machines RuberNerd uses, new debug break commands, and seven pseudomids debug. This week's episode is now. Episode 478, Debunking Pseudo-Myths, recorded on the 19th of October 2022. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow to find the online backup for truly paranoid people. And if you want to support this show, like the other 30 patrons that we already have, thanks for that, go to patreon.com slash bsdnow. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Alan Jude. Welcome. This is a fresh episode we are currently recording. Well, you'll listen to that a little bit later, as always. But nevertheless, it's still fresh because headlines today are open source and enterprise environments. Where are we now and what is our way forward? Yeah, so this is a great one from Peter Hanstein. And it starts off, open source, free software and enterprise IT environments have both been around for quite a while. Uh, I'm old enough to remember when the general perception was that the free exchange of source code was merely a game for amateurs and at best for academics. Uh, in contrast, the proper business way to do things was to perhaps learn general principles and ideas from the academics, but real products for business use would be built and sold as binary only, with any source code to be kept locked away in secret. If you are a little younger, you may even remember time when Windows NT was the future, and that was essentially gospel and all business pundits were saying we would, you know, be seeing the last of Unix in mainframes within a handful of years. Uh, but there went the 80s and the 90s and the 2000s and, and Unix didn't go anywhere. Uh, the PC architecture and a few other proprietary technologies were the way businesses uh, did things and the way forward. There was no discussion and no dissent even seemed possible. But then the internet happened. Uh, what few people outside some inner circles were aware of at the time was that the net uh, work was actually code that came directly from the BSD uh, or the Berkeley software distribution. BSD Unix, or simply BSD for short, was a freely licensed operating system that was a result of a rather informal cooperation of researchers in academia and business alike, originally derived from uh, the AT&T Unix source code. Uh, when the US Department of Defense wanted uh, to work on a resilient, device-independent, distributed, and auto-configuring network, the task of supplying the reference implementation for that TCP IP stack based on a stream of specifications dubbed the Request for Comments, or RFCs, fell to the uh, an internal group of developers who were coordinated by the Computer Science Research Group at the University of California. So there is actually a, if you ever heard the story from Kirk McCusick, there was a kind of a bake-off between a commercial version and the BSD version. Um, but the, the BSD version turned out to be a lot better than the commercial one. And so it became the standard and was the basis of the network stack in, in even many commercial operating systems. Due to a handful of accidents of history, mainly involving imperfect communication between groups of developers and combined with the somewhat misguided uh, lawsuits about the origins of BSD code, it was Linux that became the household term for free software in general and the re-emergence of Unix-like systems 
in the internet connected server market space. Uh, Linux distributions came with the early GNU user land, as well as generous helpings of other BSD code. But then the war on Linux and the proliferation of open source tools. Uh, during the late 90s and early 2000s, the internet and services of all kinds that ran on top of it exploded in all directions. That expansion had the effect of advancing the free Unix-like systems such as Linux and BSD, which would run quite comfortably on commonly available hardware, along with the ever-expanding number of development tools and software of all kinds and all new categories for users. The success of the open source software led to what was dubbed the War on Linux, a rather vicious defamation campaign executed by uh, PR companies and lawsuits and uh, mainly driven by the then-dominant desktop uh, software vendors' ambitions to dominate the server space. Uh, but in the end, Linux survived, uh, and now we are where we are. Over the years, it became clear to essentially everyone in the industry that open source tools were essential to doing development, and several practical aspects of developer life led to even increasing or ever-increasing open source use. During the time of the war on Linux, the likes of Apple, Cisco, and Netscaler, which was later acquired by Citrix, and Sun Microsystems either incorporated open source code into their products and workflows, or open sourced large parts of their own code, or forked freely available code to base proprietary systems on it. And maybe we're discussing each of these approaches in detail later at some point. But then we have the present, where, you know, software is developed on Macs, deployed on a cloud somewhere, which most likely... Uh, more likely than not, runs on Linux. Your software is all probably uses some open source. So even if uh, the software is proprietary, it probably has some bits of open source in it. Uh, you know, that's something we see all the time now that open source software that's liberally licensed is used in commercial products. And many times that's a, a benefit to everyone because, you know, if your washing machine has the ability to send a notification to your phone when your laundry is ready, uh, you probably want that network stack to be a good open source one from a BSD and not something some developer made up under time pressure just to get it to work well enough uh, that it can send a message to your phone and, you know, in the wrong situation is going to break, you know, flood your network of your house with bad messages or be able to be crashed by a stray packet or something. Yeah, that's a good analogy. <laughs> so even if you're not a developer, you're probably aware of open source, and maybe even that a bunch of the software you use is open source. Uh, but back in the days of the war on Linux, and to the, some extent still, we have often faced the claim that open source software could either never be as secure as proprietary software, or that open source software was inherently more secure uh, than the closed source kind, because given enough eyeballs, all bugs are shallow. But it turns out both assertions fail because even without access to source code, it is possible to find running software and find vulnerabilities in it. And on the other hand, the shallowness of bugs depends critically on the eyes looking, uh, being attached to people with sufficient competence in the field and people actually looking at it. Just because it's open source doesn't mean people are going to look at it to find the bug. Mm, yeah. You know, if they run into a bug, they might be able to look at the code and figure out what the bug was. But it just because it's open source doesn't mean people are going around you know, checking it for correctness all the time. Or understand the code. Yeah. <laughs> well, yes, it requires that the people that read the code understand the code. But, you know, people generally aren't going to go read the code for fun. Uh, there's, you know, usually some reason why they're inspecting the code trying to find things. For example, uh, the public reaction to a couple of security incidents during recent years 
that generated a flurry of uh, largely uninformed punditry are worth revisiting when looking at the lessons we learned from those. For example, the solar wind supply chain attack, uh, aka sunburst from 2020, uh, one of the most widely publicized yet poorly understood security incidents in the recent years emerged when it was revealed that adversaries unknown uh, had been able to compromise the build computer where the proprietary binaries for SolarWinds uh, were distributed to the network management system and everywhere it is used. The SANS Institute has provided a fairly thorough write-up on the incident, which breaks down as follows. The first stage of a multi-stage compromise kit was included in the binary distribution packages, uh, complete with authentic signatures from the build system. So to make sure the software you're getting is from the real SolarWinds, they signed it. But in this case, they the version they signed had been infected already. And so they like, this is from real SolarWinds, but does have a virus. They were largely put uh, directly into production environments by network admins all over the place. Uh, the malware then went on to explore the network they had landed in and through a process that made heavy use of crafted DNS queries and other non-obvious techniques, the miscreants were able to compromise several high security government and enterprise networks. You know, several open source component supply chain attacks happened. So soon after the Sunburst incident, several incidents occurred where popular open source components uh, that other systems pulled in as dependencies started malfunctioning or were so suddenly unavailable, causing complete malfunctions or loss of functionality, such as web services suddenly refusing to interact with specific networks. Uh, the sudden breakage of open source components uh, caused quite a bit of uproar and predictably the chattering subset of the consulting class uh, set about churning out dire warnings about the risk of using open source software of any kind. Uh, so I think this is some of this was the protest where like uh, node.js bits that updated a component that lots of other tools are built on and they pulled in and you know, would refuse to uh, talk to certain ranges of IP addresses or uh, would actually sometimes actively try to erase files on your computer and so on. Uh, and that one really goes to show that just because it's open source doesn't mean anybody's looking at the code and noticing, you know, hey, somebody changed this to make it delete your files. Yeah, nasty stuff. Uh, so Peter says, uh, watching from the sidelines, it struck many open source oriented professionals, uh, myself included, that the combination of these incidents carry an important lesson. It is obvious in a modern environment we suck at upgrades automatically and frequently and that no uh, an untested code should never be deployed directly to production. Uh, and so then that gives us to the case of blind trust versus the right to read and educate yourself and the right to repair. In the case of proprietary binary-only software, you have no choice but to trust the supplier. At least with open source, you have the right to read and inspect the code, to learn about it, and if something goes wrong, the right to repair it yourself. Uh, and then there's a section about contributing uh, and you know cooperating on the maintenance. As with any product, it's entirely possible to be a relatively passive consumer. Just install and use it and build it whatever you want on top of it. Interacting with the community only via downloading the needed code from mere sites, uh, or maybe communicating via online forums or mailing lists. If you are a developer or integrator with an ambition to make one or more open source uh, products central to your business, either by using or contributing to an existing project or starting a new one, several different approaches are, a policy, are possible. You know, you could grab it and fork it and sell hardware based on it, or you could keep uh, in sync with the upstream, or you know you could open source everything and then sell support for it, or you could decide the code is both good enough to publish and useful elsewhere, uh, and you know give back to open source projects, uh, and a bunch of different ways to do that. 
And then he goes on to talk about uh, how you use licensing as the uh, assertion of authority and having procedure, uh, policies and procedures on how the open source project will work so people know what to expect uh, and how you probably want to keep it simple for your own sake. Uh, you know, there are several hundred licenses in existence and the open source initiative considers to be open source. Uh, but if you stick to something like BSD or MIT style where the whole license is only a couple of lines of, of text, uh, it means that you have less chance of, of running into problems. But he says, you know, there's a lot of work to be done still. So this is where we are today. Modern software development and indeed a good chunk of business and society in general depends on, depends critically on open source software. If you enjoyed this piece or become annoyed at any part of it, uh, then Peter would like to hear from you. Oh yeah, great article. Uh, and apparently he's bought a great domain of nxdomain.nl. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> I noticed that at the bottom. Yeah, that's how you can reach Peter if you have any further comments on his uh, articles or any other activities. All right, uh, we have another article here as next item in our headlines from Clara Systems, your comprehensive guide to RC, FreeBSD services and automation. They start the article with a short but very good sentence, I think. FreeBSD has, one more time. FreeBSD has a very stable and well thought out in it and services system called RC. And according to the FreeBSD man pages, the RC utility first appeared in the 4.0 BSD release of 1980. That was 42 years ago. It has of course been modernized since then, but before we get into that, let's first take a quick overview of its history. So the classic boot process was simple. The BSD kernel started in it, which then passed control to the RC, etc. RC script before starting a getTTY process to manage each virtual console. The etc. RC script then called etc. netstart to get network configuration up and running. And later etc. RC called etc. RC.local to start daemons that were not part of the base system. In 2000, NetBSD began modernizing the simple etc. RC subsystem First, NetBSD introduced an etcrc.d directory to contain separate scripts for each service. Second, they introduced the rcorder command to determine the order in which these services would be started at system boot. FreeBSD imported these improvements three years later in FreeBSD 5.0 release, with improvements and bug fixes continuing to be added ever since. Although the rc.d system may not seem very polished by modern standards, it's simple and rocked unlikely to crash absent a serious sysadmin error or file system corruption. Although there are arguments to be made for more, quote, modern, unquote, in its systems like System D, uh, the author here prefers and recommends the stability, simplicity, and readability of BSD's more traditional in its system. Yep. And it goes on to talk about how uh, service definitions work, uh, how you can enable and disable services, how to start and restart things, how to use the RC order, tool to change the order uh, and make sure you know things start in the order you need them to uh, enabling and disabling services uh, setting options on services uh, and even a little bit on how to use some of the interesting services that are built in and a little bit about cron as well no. it also covers how the rc system can be used to load kernel modules Yes, that's uh, another way of, you know, automatically loading kernel modules that are not part of the uh, kernel itself. So uh, during runtime, they get uh, loaded and enabled. And they're yep. even close and then with it... yeah, Ansible orchestration at the end. So well worth a read, the whole article. And uh, 
Oh, let me read the conclusion here. FreeBSD's RC system provides a simple yet powerful way to control, manage, and configure the services that are started when the system boots. Keeping the service management system simple enough is that easy of a reason about and to extend, but powerful enough that it supports modern automation techniques and doesn't hamper your deployments. This provides a simple way to manage the entire system via a single interface. Okay, let's move into our news roundup here. We have a very interesting article for uh, historians because, well, it's from 2TUHS, which I learned now to use what the actual uh, abbreviation stands for. Uh, and it's titled How Rob Pike Got Hired by Dennis Ritchie. Ooh. Right, this is probably the, the Unix Heritage Society. Heritage Society, yep. For one reason or another, had had it called always the Historic Society, but it's the Heritage Society. So here we go. <laughs> right. Uh, so yeah, Rob Pike uh, wrote an email here about the early BSD license threat. Uh, so he says, around 1977, I was working slash volunteering slash studying at the Dynamic Graphics Lab at the University of Toronto, where Unix ran on a PDP 1145, and we had a bunch of graphics hardware. Doing graphics on a PDP 11 was a challenge. Uh, but we managed. For reference, uh, later Dave Tenenhaus made a 256 by 256 by 8 bit frame buffer, and that was the size of the entire PDP 11 data address space. <laughs> so he had an idea of, of how constrained these machines were back then. Uh, everyone was jealous of the cat slash uh, photo typesetter that Bell Labs uh, research used to print their documentation. Uh, one Friday evening, I had the idea to use our uh, stinky but effective Veritech plotter as an output device for NROF. Uh, in just a few hours, our libraries were uh, already pretty good. We had something tolerable up and running. Tom Duff uh, dropped by and helped make it faster by coding what we would now call the character blitter in Assembler. Uh, then Bill Reeves joined in and Mike Tilson, and by the end of the weekend, we were pretty good uh, having at efficient output. It was still NROF. Uh, trough didn't come till later, mostly due to Bill, I think, who did a lot of work on the character set. It was gray and blotchy and smelly, but after a Xerox copy, it looked pretty good uh, for the time. Then Ron Bicker, uh, who ran the lab and was a graduate advisor for everyone else, I was just an undergrad physics student having fun, uh, stopped by on a Monday morning and was furious to see us all hammering on the code. Everyone was supposed to be working on their thesis, and we had spent the whole weekend hacking. I was about to be in serious trouble for distracting the graduate students, but then he saw the output and completely changed his tone. He's like, can I use this to print my new grant proposal? <laughs> uh, for context, consider this. I used the system for my fourth-year uh, fourth optics project report. The professor was furious with me for copying someone's work. He did not believe it was possible to create output like that, and to be fair, it wasn't possible almost anywhere else. I had to take him to the lab and show him how I did it before he would let me pass the course. Until then, no one had ever seen a student capable of making text look good. Uh, the software went on uh, to the Toronto tape uh, with a top of file comment crediting uh, Rob, Bill, Tom, and Mike. It emerged after from Berkeley with the comments replaced by the Regents rankling rewrites. Uh, when I interviewed at Bell Labs, Dennis Ritchie saw on my resume that I claimed to have worked on the Veritech text output uh, system. 
He asked why I had bothered when Berkeley already had done it, because I wrote it first and then Berkeley took the credit. Uh, Berkeley did tweak it, but honestly, it was mostly our work. I didn't care so much about losing credit for the code, but the idea was 100% mine, and for a young punk, uh, the loss of credit was upsetting. Later, uh, Henry Spencer, another Toronto graduate, explained the story on Usenet. I didn't know uh, if he was to be believed, and I thought the 1980s it remained the Berkeley typesetting software. Uh, it was all long ago, but seeing that Regent's comment is, and as we say today, triggering. <laughs> to be fair to Dennis, he believed me, and maybe that helped me get the job. Interesting. Okay, so history is uh, rectified in certain regards, now that we know about this. Very good. Uh, so here, the next thing here is a follow-up to one of our uh, items we had on an earlier show, where Rubenert was basically telling about his Windows 11 gaming post, and that got uh, replies from uh, another Twitter user asking, hey, what are your FreeBSD machines like? And uh, this post here that we cover is from Rubenert's, uh, his answer basically listing his FreeBSD machines. And before... Uh, Ah, last time I looked at Rubenold's blog, he had a different layout of his, uh, you know, uh, you know, design and all that. That looks the new one looks a bit fresher and more compact. I like this one. Okay, so going into the article, um, so in response to his Windows 11 game post, where he mentioned dual posting or dual booting into FreeBSD most of the time, the imitable Cartron uh, or at Cartron asked what machines he uses, and it's been a while since he's done a post like this. Okay, so these are Lubernerd's FreeBSD machines at the time of writing. First one is Fauna, his main FreeBSD tower. She's a budget AMD Ryzen machine he built earlier this year for games, then realized she's also a great workstation. Cooler Master, NRT, Mini, ITX case. So there's plenty of uh, specs here, pretty difficult to read here. But yeah, uh, a Ryzen 5600X CPU, 32 gigs of RAM, uh, and a, a small mini ITX case and a large 27-inch 4K monitor. All right, then there's Holo, his FreeBSD server, built from used parts to test Zen before switching to Beehive and Jails, runs NetAppleTalk, uh, Plex, Minecraft, MusicCube, and DNS filtering, which is a Supermicro X11 SAE M board, Intel Xeon E3, uh, 16 gigs of ECC memory, and a bunch of mirrored ZFS hard drives. Then the other machine is a LUM, L-U-M, the Panasonic Let's Note CFRZ6, my on-call laptop I bought during Asia BSDCon 2019. Oh, wow. Japanese Panasonic laptops are amazing. She has a higher res screen than most ThinkPads, twice her white and size, and more ports than my WorkMax. I wrote a page on the FreeBSD Wiki about that. Huh. Then there's Sasara, the Cloud VM. She acts as my live testbed for FreeBSD template releases at work. She runs my blog here, all of my partner, uh, Clara with uh, Clara with a C in this case, uh, my partner Clara's stuff, and an install of Nextcloud, among other things. And the ones he has on the horizon, a Vision 5 2 Risk 5 dev board, which he backed on Kickstarter. Uh, there's a link to that. Uh, they claim to have Linux support out of the gate, but I want to get FreeBSD booting on it. Okay, we will... Uh... Watch this space. And another is a Raspberry Pi 400 for testing FreeBSD on ARM and for running some classic games in DOSBox and ScumVM. I also have a few uh, physical and virtual machines running NetBSD, but that's for another post. Very nice. Okay. So next up, we have a programming post uh, from Chris Wellens, his new debug break command. This is, I previously mentioned the Windows feature where pressing F12 on a 
in a debuggy window, uh, causes it to break into the debugger. It works with any debugger, GDB, RemedyBG, Visual Studio, etc. Since the hotkey simply raises a breakpoint structured exception, uh, it was surprisingly useful, and I've wanted it available in more contexts, such as console programs or even Linux. The result is a new debug break command, now included in the W64 dev kit. Though, of course, you already have everything you need to build it and try it out uh, now, I'm also working on a Linux implementation. It's named after the Microsoft Virtual C intrinsic and Win32 function. Uh, it takes no arguments and is uh, and its operation is indiscriminate. It raises a breakpoint exception in all debuggy processes system-wide. That might be reckless, perhaps, uh, but it's certainly convenient. You don't need to tell it which processes you want to pause. Uh, it just works, and a good uh, debugging experience is one of ease and convenience. The linchpin is the debug break process command. Uh, the command walks the process list and fires this function at each process. Uh, nothing happens for programs without a debugger attached, so it doesn't even bother checking if it's a debuggee. Uh, it couldn't be simpler. I've used it on everything from Windows XP to Windows 11, and it works flawlessly. And it's just a, a short bit of code where it, you know, creates a, a helper and then does a for loop through the first window through and hits next on every window until it's got them all, opens the process, fires debug break process, and then closes the handle. Uh, but getting to debug break on Linux, on Unix-like systems, the equivalent of a breakpoint exception is a sig trap. There's already a standard command to send signals, kill. So a debug break command can be built using nothing more than a few lines of shell script. However, unlike debug break process, signaling every process with sig trap will only end in tears. The script will need a way to determine which processes are debuggees. Linux exposes processes in a file system, uh, a virtual file system slash proc, where each process appears as a directory. Its status file includes a tracer PID field, which will be non-zero for any debuggees. So this script for loops over the output of find on slash proc, um, checks for the tracer PID, and if it's there, it call, fires kill sig trap on that process ID. Uh, so that script is now part of his dot files, uh, has worked very well so far, and effectively smooths over some debugging differences uh, between Windows and Linux. Reducing my context switching mental load. Uh, there's probably a better way to express this uh, script, but this is the best I could do so far. On the BSDs, you'd need to parse the output of PS or Procsat or something to distinguish the individual debuggees. Uh, it does have a missing feature. I had originally planned for one flag, dash K. Rather than breakpoint the debuggy, it would terminate all debuggy processes. This is especially important on Windows where debuggy processes block builds due to file locking shenanigans. I'd like to run debug break dash K and have it just kill everything. Uh, okay, uh, speaking of breaking something, <laughs> we have another post here from uh, Peter Sanik. Hopefully that's correct pronunciation. We talked at EuroBSDCon in Vienna and he has a post titled seven pseudomits debunk. And um, yeah, since he's pretty much involved with pseudo development, I would say, uh, it's kind of a reference source here. The most common misconceptions I've come across involve security, flexibility, and central management. Here, I debunk these pseudo myths. All right, what's the myth here? Um, yeah, so he often hears several misconceptions about pseudo when attending conferences or reading blogs. Most of these misconceptions focus on security, flexibility, and the central management. And uh, many of those arise because users know only the basic functionality of sudo, 
Uh, the sudoers file by default has only two rules. The root user and members of the administrative wheel group can do practically anything using sudo. There are basically or barely no uh, any limits and optional features are not enabled at all. Even this setup is better than sharing the root password as you can usually follow who did what on your systems using the logs. However, learning some of the lesser known old and new features gives you much more control and visibility on your systems. So this, uh, he has a subheading here, sudo configuration is stored locally, making it vulnerable. Yes, by default configuration is stored locally. If you give users root shell or edit access, they can modify the sudoers file. And then of course it's all over. On a single host, there's nothing you can do about it. Once you have multiple hosts, however, there are many ways to solve this problem. Uh, all major configuration management platforms, including Ansible, have support to maintain the sudoers file. And even if the actual configuration is a local one, it is maintained from a central location. Any local changes can be detected, reported, and changed back automatically to the centrally managed version. Or you use LDAP as a central uh, directory where you store all these. And he talks a bit about that further, like distributing that and giving it uh, all the proper permissions. But maintaining a sudoers file on multiple hosts is error prone and a compliance problem. Yes, this is right as long as you edit individual sudoers files by hand. However, as suggested in this response to the previous myth, even with a very low host count, most organizations introduce some kind of directory services, LDAP or Active Directory and configuration management. You can use a directory service to store the sudo config centrally, or you can use Ansible and other config management apps to maintain the sudoers file on your host from a central config repository. Then there's the sudo code base is too large. Yes, it is large, is the answer. Some even call it a death star and say that a large code base also means that it is insecure. There are smaller software projects. However, these implement only a very basic subset of pseudo functionality. Using those, you lose a lot of visibility into what's happening on your systems. Just think about session recording, right? Uh, so commercial pseudo replacements might implement many pseudo features. However, pseudo is open source and most of the, uh, or one of the most analyzed open source codes. Commercial code bases are even larger and not analyzed by third parties. Then there's the myth about shell access. Visibility is tricky. And the answer to that is using just the default settings, shell or editor access makes it hard to see what's happening inside a shell session. However, session recordings have been able to make visible what happened inside a cell sh shell session for well over a decade. However, version 1.9.0 of sudo introduced a central collection of session recordings so they could not be deleted or modified by the local user. And version 1.9.8 also includes subcommand logging. So you can lose those logs to check any commands executed in the pseudo session and only watch recordings when necessary. Okay, you can't use two-factor authentication in sudo is another myth. That is right is the answer. There is no out-of-the-box two-factor authentication in sudo. However, you can implement two-factor using Linux's PAM. Or if you prefer, you can do it inside sudo itself. Sudo has a modular architecture and thus can be extended. Uh, like in version 0.9 of sudo that introduced an approval plugin API, making it possible to have additional restrictions before executing a command. And the last myth here is sudo logs do not improve security. The uh, answer to that is if you collect log messages only locally and you do not check them at all, then log messages do not improve security. However, even syslog D, the original syslog implementation from more than three decades ago, supported central log collection. Moving pseudo logs from a remote host or a cloud service is not as easy as modifying local logs. And there's also built-in support for central logging in sudo. 
uh, there's sudo underscore log server d log serve d you can collect not only session recordings but even logs as well and in the end that can forward events to syslog or maintain its own log file cool nice to know these uh, things are definitely myths Okay, uh, let's go right into our feedback and questions for this episode. We got some interesting feedback. Thanks for everyone who submitted. If you want to be featured in another episode where, with your feedback, then send your feedback to feedback at bstnow.tv and then it will appear. The first one is Andy with sharing of uh, ACLs or and ACLs. Andy writes this rather long uh, reply or feedback, but nevertheless important. Hi, BSD Now team. First, uh, thanks for your dedication to both the BSD Now channel and the BSDs, especially FreeBSD and OpenBSD in general. You're welcome. We, we do what we can, right? We're not the only ones. Um, here's the question. I have been a passionate advocate of both OpenBSD since roughly four and FreeBSD since roughly nine years, I guess. Contributed many tests and bug reports over the years and enjoyed your sessions as often as I can. Yeah, so thanks to you as well for your support in this way. Always good to have uh, tests and bug reports and uh, yeah, feedback this way. There's one topic that I have been hoping would be answered over time by anyone somewhere, but alas, after many years, there still seems to be unclear consensus on how to make Samba run on fa as fast as NetApple Talk on FreeBSD with ZFS from Mac clients. It was several years ago now that Apple announced they were going to drop a AFP, Apple File Protocol for SMB, Okay, I thought that finally the Samba client implementation on macOS would get much needed overhaul. Windows clients using server message block have always been faster than macOS using server message block, but none as fast as Apple file protocol. Over the years, the Mac client has had various issues, but it's now considered stable by Apple. Okay, so that's down to the server side for now. There have been a whole bunch of small changes, including things like character, set changes in macOS that came with APFS, which should have removed the need for SMB to translate character codes when transferring from disk to SMB and vice versa. There were various locking fixes and other things that Apple is shy to share. Slowly but surely, SMB on Mac has been getting faster. At the same time, with each release of FreeBSD and Samba, I have been trying to tune and optimize the Samba configuration on ZFS. But there are two outstanding questions which I would love your opinions to debate on. Uh, the first, what is the current state of send file support for FreeBSD with ZFS? Uh, send file provides a notable performance boost on Linux by avoiding various locks and giving most or more direct access. But send file support reportedly did or does not seem to work on FreeBSD with ZFS. However, he suspects this is uh, changed with all the open ZFS changes. And what is the current status of extended attribute support as system attributes? like storing Apple's resource forks into ZFS uh, SH, which are much faster than Apple's doubles that are just hidden folders, etc. Oh, wow, very detailed. For a long time, setting the ZFS pool extended attributes setting to SA did nothing on FreeBSD. I believe this might have changed in recent versions of FreeBSD again since the OpenZFS changes. Is this true? Yeah, so uh, for the Apple-specific stuff, that's uh, a little more complicated still. Um, Maybe it makes sense uh, to ask these uh, in order or answer these in order because there are quite a few questions in here. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. So send file support with ZFS. Uh, so send file will work. Uh, like it's not going to give an error if you do send file on top of ZFS on FreeBSD, but because it has to copy the data from the ZFS arc into the FreeBSD buffer cache to then 
zero copy it to the socket, it's not truly zero copy. Um, so it might still be better, but it might actually end up with the double the uh, uh, using more memory temporarily because you're copying it. You have the copy in the arc and a copy in the buffer cache. Um, there's currently no work to to solve that, but uh, depending on your use case, it probably doesn't matter that much. Uh, but all the changes for this would mostly be FreeBSD specific. Uh, for extended attribute support as system attributes, uh, the big thing that they've been trying to solve is that the attributes are stored differently on FreeBSD, Linux, and other operating systems, um, such that if you set the attributes on Linux and then import the pool on FreeBSD, they weren't visible because uh, they just happen to be named in a different namespace and wouldn't show up quite the same. The work for that, I think, has happened upstream, but I don't know that it's actually in a release yet. Uh, and so that'll depend there. Um, as far as the performance goes, it's not something I spend a lot of time on, uh, so I don't actually know that particular area of ZFS very well. Yeah, it's specific uh, to that. Yeah, ecosystem. AFP support, uh, again, not something I use. I mostly use Samba uh, or NFS, both of which should work fine from a Mac. Uh, ACLs with Samba, uh, I know lots of people using it and it works okay for them. I don't know about the performance or what you'd need for that in general. But yeah, there are uh, a very, very large portion of people using ZFS are sharing files to Windows and using Windows permissions on it. And so uh, it does work at least acceptably. Yeah, I guess this is a very specific uh, environment where these attributes are very important to have. Yeah. And then the bonus thing about the Max user sysctl, um, yeah, that's mostly a classic thing from FreeBSD 4 and earlier, uh, where you know, you'd know you actually have a system with hundreds of users logged into it. Um, and it mostly does scale automatically to memory. Not all the values are always right, but they're usually good enough. Um, ZFS isn't really impacted by how many users you necessarily have on a machine. Uh, so I don't think you need to tune it specifically for ZFS at all. Yeah. If there are any Samba folks out there who might have an answer or have some tuning recommendations in this kind of environment, then let us know. We'll be happy to link to this one and feature it in a future episode because this is super specific to, to that kind of uh, you know, uh, usage environment. Okay, I think we covered all of these questions in here. Uh, yeah, so thanks, Andy, for this question. And there is the next one, Reptilicus Rex, nice username, by the way, uh, about boot environments. This one is going like the following. I'm interested in the technical differences between FreeBSD's boot environments and the Linux way of accomplishing what seemingly is a similar concept through ButterFS's subvolumes. Okay, more specifically at a technical level, how does a rollback to a FreeBSD boot environment compare to a rollback to a ButterFS snapshot done through Snapper, etc.? I just want to know, and I'm not interested in starting a flame war about which is better. We don't go into that this way anyway. There's probably pros and cons to both, and maybe that can be discussed. Sure. If possible, please devote some time on this on the upcoming show, which is this one. For the listeners, since Mr. Moore was on the host, yeah, same here. Um, thank you for the effort over the several years. You're welcome. Okay, so boot environments, basically, for people who have never heard about them, is like a um, <laughs> taking a version uh, of your operating system, the current running operating system, and freezing that in time. So we basically make a snapshot of the whole file system tree that you can then clone and jump back and forth to as required. And a boot environment is basically making that easy for the user so they don't have to um, you know, 
include all of the subdirectories. Certain uh, directories from the file system tree are excluded, like uh, user, and I think it's var. And home, of course, because if you want to change to an earlier boot environment, you still want to preserve your files in your home directory, right? So that is um, one of the things that is uh, specific about them. And uh, FreeBSD, or yeah, I think it's FreeBSD only at the moment, uh, you have the choice in the FreeBSD loader to pick which boot environment you want to boot into, and then you uh, boot between different states of your operating system. Typical use cases, you have updates, not sure if they work properly, or you install packages which may break your system in various interesting ways. So you take a boot environment before that, perform the update, whether it's a system update or a package update and then if it all goes to hell then you just jump back and are at the same state where you were before the update and if it all works you can try it out a little bit longer and then either switch to uh, the boot environment completely as your main system <coughs> sorry or you jump and let uh, make the step of going um, or making the update actually in the boot environment without um, changing your current system and then test the boot environment, boot into that one, test it out and see if it works. And if it's not, then you just jump back and then you're uh, fine as you were before. So I haven't looked at um, the Linux side of things in this regard for what ButterFS does there. Um, but when I see ButterFS snapshots, so um, boot environments are basically clones but I'm not sure if uh, ButterFS is having a similar concept like that, or is they just use the same terminology. Right, so when you switch ZFS and boot environments, that's not a rollback. So a rollback would just erase everything that changed since the snapshot. But with uh, ZFS boot environments, what you're doing is taking a snapshot and cloning it where the two copies might diverge. But with the boot environment, you're just picking a different file system to use as your root file system. So at boot or, you know, uh, with the BECTL command saying for future boots, you're just picking a different one of these file systems to use as your root. They don't have to actually be related. They might be, one might be a clone of the other or based on a snapshot from like a week ago or something. Like often before I upgrade, I create a, a boot environment that is the system before I upgraded. Uh, but, you know, in, in server deployments, we also do a thing where we actually land uh a whole new boot environment that has absolutely no relation to any of the other ones uh, and has like a newer version of FreeBSD in it or something. Um, and so rolling back a ZFS snapshot is similar, but not the same as rolling back a ButterFS snapshot. But boot environments are actually completely separate file systems that may or may not be clones and have shared blocks, uh, but you're just selecting entirely different boot environment or entirely different file system to be your root file system. Yeah, so I haven't played too much, and Snapper is also new to me. Is that like a Ubuntu thing that they developed, or is that I, more I'm disclosed? not that familiar with anything having to do with ButterFS. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, we have never looked at that too closely, um, so that's why we cannot make a good comparison from the Linux side of things. Um, yeah, maybe someone else knows this and can provide a bit more uh, feedback on this. So we'd be happy to discuss this again in a future episode. Uh, but it's definitely interesting to look at that. In FreeBSD, you can look at the source code like uh, BECTL, how they do that, how they do the boot environments. Yeah, it's mostly, uh, this. Uh, picking the boot environment is mostly setting a property on the pool saying which of the many file systems to use as your root file system on next boot. It's basically just a hint to the bootloader about which root file system to use. Um, 
mostly by the fact that ZFS doesn't generally use FSTab as the way to select the root file system. But if you were, you know, if you're doing yield classic way of doing it, uh, switching boot environments would basically just be changing which partition was your slash partition uh, in your etc fs tab. Uh, but with ZFS, you don't have as much problems. Yep, exactly. Okay, uh, then next is i3, wait, i3 Luefire? Uh, well, i, I fire probably. Nice host name, by the way, or username. Uh, a beehive issue. Okay, let's look at that. I'm trying to get FreeBSD up and running with a GUI, so I followed the instructions from the Zero to Beehive article on clarasystems.com, including the part about installing my GPU driver, but it doesn't seem to work. GDM isn't working or something else is wrong. I need more help getting it running, but I can't seem to figure it out. The handbook doesn't seem to be very clear since it looks like it tries to explain the process for ports post, uh, mostly and not packages. It has been a really long time since I last used the desktop environment on FreeBSD, I think the last time I had a FreeBSD desktop was back when PCBSD was a, was a thing. I've also tried GhostBSD, but it has similar issues. It can't get going with a GUI. Uh, there's a gist from GitHub that links there with more information. Uh, oh, follow-up here. Okay, this was the problem. The 6800 XT isn't supported yet. Solved. Is the AMD GPU RX 6800T supported on FreeBSD 13.1? Yes. Oh, that's a post on FreeBSD forums. And I guess that's the solution there. Yeah, it seems like that's uh, the problem we ran into. Okay. Cool. Uh, graphics drivers are evil. <laughs> yeah, especially if you have the wrong one that's not supported yet. Hopefully that changes in the future so that you can try out the whole uh, tutorial. Okay, that's uh, somewhat solved. Not yet, yet, but then hopefully we have a solution uh, in a future release. Okay, uh, that's the last for the feedback uh, that we have this week. We look forward to our new episode next week. Hopefully you do too. And then see you.